We're going to look at Acts 17 again, a trip from Thessalonica where there was a riot to Berea where they were open-minded. They were willing to search the scriptures. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your kindness and goodness. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Pray for Eric that as he preaches to us and teaches us that we would learn And thank you, Lord, for this section of Acts. May we learn implications uh, of what we study today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Acts 17, 8 through 13. I'll just read the text from the New American Standard Bible. This was after, by the way, preaching at the Thessalonica synagogue and elsewhere and a church is formed but then a mob was formed too Acts 17 8 and they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things and when they had received a pledge from Jason and others they released them verse 10 then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now there now these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. Verse twelve, therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica, verse 13, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So not only were they hostile to the gospel in Thessalonica, they couldn't even stand the idea that somebody somewhere else might believe it. And so you have this hostility to the truth that's seen in our narrative here. Okay, and we're going to look at that. Now, one of the things I've been explaining, this thematic in Luke-Acts, remember, two-volume work, one author, should be read and interpreted that way, Luke-Acts. Because themes that began at the beginning of Luke are tied up later in Acts. So you got to know the whole thing. But throughout Luke, there was varying responses to Jesus Christ and his message and his disciples. And some welcomed and some rejected. Okay? And the theme is those who welcome Christ and his messengers messengers, preachers and receive the message are those who are receiving God's purposes they they don't reject God's purpose they love Christ they grow and they are those who are will receive the kingdom those who reject actually aren't satisfied to just say well no I don't believe they become hostile they attack the message and so we saw that I covered this slide last week they, they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another King Jesus and last week I explained that this was a twisting of reality and actually in Luke the they didn't really think that Jesus was a king, the civil authorities, who was trying to threaten Caesar. Okay? But that didn't stop the, the riotous mob back in Luke 23. Pilate said, I, I don't see any guilt in this man. Luke 23, 4. But then they said he stirs up the people. So this goes on. It started in Luke, goes on in Acts. And they mocked the idea that he was king. Now, the reality, again, I told you about this last week. The reality is this. 
And this is narrated in Luke X. Jesus ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead, and he reigns at the right hand of God. So he is a king after the manner of Psalm 110 and verse 1, and further on in Psalm 110. The actual establishment of the kingdom is real, but yet future. For now, Jesus reigns in heaven. But the kingdom is gaining citizens one by one as people believe the gospel. Okay? And so, though Jesus is reigning in heaven, not on earth, people still believe in him and come to Christ and come under his lordship. And we will, we have received an eternal kingdom. That's all that goes. Now, we want to look at the responses. So Jason had been arrested. He had hosted or welcomed the apostles. He had believed. So they arrested him. And evidently, he's somebody they knew. But he posted bond and... uh, this bond would be forfeited if there was any more civil disturbances. So they're blaming him. Well, you're going to pay if we have any more problem in this city. Frankly, the civil authorities didn't care much whether people believed in Jesus or not. They just didn't want trouble on their watch. They just wanted their job to be easier. And So they had already come to, after all kinds of uprisings with Jews over the centuries, uh, back a couple hundred A.D. or B.C., they had sort of a standing, but that didn't last either because there was another revolt of the Jews in 70 A.D. Now I have here, oh, I don't, you can see it. This just, again, I keep showing these things. Not just, not just because I have them, although I certainly want to use what I bought, which is all these slides from Acts. But we want to emphasize that the truth of the Bible is historical. It is not just blind faith. Real people, real places, real events. Collaborated by archaeology, coinage, inscriptions, secular writings, and so on. So what about Claudius? Claudius was the one who expelled the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. And I think last week I cited some uh, references that they pronounced Christ Christus, or Christus. And so evidently the dispute about Christ went on even in Rome, and Claudius wasn't going to decide who was a Jew, who was a Christian. He just threw them all out. So that happened. Here, the silver denarius depicts Tiberius. Um, here's a coin from Tarsus. And another about Claudius. So we have historical reality mentioned in the Bible. The Bible's true. Now let's go to Berea. Let's talk about the gospel to Berea. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Typically, Paul would go there first. Why? Well, Paul was Jewish, but the main reason was that was a starting point. There was a common background of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews already were having this, had the scriptures, and they had the passages in their scriptures that talked about the Messianic promises. And the main claim of the apostles is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and that he came as the suffering servant 
predicted in Isaiah and elsewhere, and will come later again as the conquering king. That's what they didn't understand. And so this was preached by Paul in the synagogues. They have a common language, common scriptures, and something that Paul would preach to them. Now the reactions varied. But remember, Paul's original reaction himself was hostility. He was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples at the occasion of Stephen's martyrdom. It was only when he himself met the resurrected Christ that he was converted. And so it's not surprising that there was a hostile reaction in many cases. So the adverse reaction in Thessalonica did not deter from continuing to preach the same message. And that is thematic throughout Acts. So uh, a decision was made that it would be better for the new church in Thessalonica if Paul and Silas left and immediately, and that's what he did, and then he went 45 miles. Let me show you the slide here. While you're, if you can read that, I'm going to get my pointer. The reason why we don't have an up-to-date printout is all my fault. I thought we had enough material left from last week. Christy emailed me about it. She was out of town. I said, we'll be fine. And then yesterday I sat down and started making all new slides. Too late. So it's my fault. But that won't keep you from getting the material. So here's Thessalonica right up here. And they go 45 miles to Berea. And then they're going to do a much longer journey down to Athens. I'll be talking about some of this as I preach. Next week I'm going to do the first sermon of 1 Corinthians. And I'm actually going to do some background material. Maybe I'll prepare you for that. When we get down here to Athens and then Corinth is right over here. Notice, if you backed up, you'd see over this way would be the Italian boot. But they could travel by sea and get into here. But there's this little area, I think it's 14 miles wide. And there have been attempts to try to create a channel through there that really didn't become fruitful until the 19th century. And so they had ways to try to drag things over ground. But the fact is that from either way, this was kind of the center. And not only of commerce, but also religious ideas of every sort under the sun. I'll explain some more of that to you next week in my sermon. Because it's very pertinent to how you interpret 1 Corinthians. The polytheism was amazing in its absurdity and its popularity and its pervasiveness. Polytheism. And so we'll be looking at that. So here we have a 45-mile journey uh, from Thessalonica, where they reacted violently, to Berea, where they searched the scriptures. Right in the same area. But this difference of response is something we would expect if we let read Luke first. Because this is exactly what happened in Luke. Who you might think would receive the message often is who rejects it. For example, when Jesus, and I taught on this not too long ago, when he went to his hometown in Nazareth, Oh, one of our boys. Look at him. Well, they want, by the time he got done preaching, they want to throw him off a cliff. He was rejected in Nazareth. And if you look at Luke, and it has Luke, from Luke 9.51 all the way up to uh, the tri- what's called the triumphal entry. Luke is not triumphal at all. It's a journey to be rejected. 
I'm going to talk about some of that, too, as we're coming up here in the next few weeks. Yes, Mike Tenorm. There's this prediction of rejection. So in Luke, Jesus is, if the readers are reading carefully, they know from Luke 9 on, he's going to Jerusalem to be rejected. Jerusalem is where prophets are hated and rejected. Jerusalem is where rebellion against God is headquartered. And so the people you think would receive it often don't. And unexpected people, sinners, Gentiles, uh, people with no social standing, often do welcome the message. That's Luke X. Yes, Norm. Yeah, that's uh, interesting that you, uh, you brought that up because uh, last night I was looking into uh, a little bit about the Bereans and wondering about the same thing. Why did the... Why did they receive it and examine the scriptures and so forth, where the Thessalonians didn't? And the, the people in Berea, as it says, they were more uh, noble-minded. Uh, there were prominent people there. It says Greeks and women and men. And uh, many of the uh, upper-class educated people lived there, um, a lot of uh, ex-military people that had retired there. And they had access not only to the scriptures but to other documentation and so forth. They could examine it. But what seemed interesting is here the people that were the intelligent people looked into it and they, they would examine the gospel. But I compared that to today. Today the educated people are the ones that reject the gospel. They have all the access and seminaries and everything. They can look into it. They could find the answers, but they reject it. Right. Thank you, Norm. That's a very good reading. And let me, that's kind of what I want to key in on today, actually. It's not really possible for us to predict who's going to receive it. We don't know. Okay. Now, what we're commanded to do is preach it. Let's go to that next slide here because that's what he mentioned and I'll talk about that word open-minded or noble-minded in a bit but we're told to go preach the gospel to all people. That's the Great Commission. Do we know who's going to receive it favorably? No. Did the apostles know? Only if God told them but it wouldn't be necessarily the exact person. Remember, God at one time he says, I have many people in that city. Well, they, we don't know who they are, neither do the preachers. That, it becomes apparent after the preaching and who receives it. Now, what was noble-minded? Let's look at our passage. Thank you, Norm. That was very good. Let, let's read Acts 17.11 now. And really drilled out on that. The people here, now this is in Berea, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed, I have that in red, the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures to see if these things were true. So they hadn't necessarily believed it at that point. They were willing to give it a fair hearing. Is this reasonable or not? Is there any evidence? Now, what, what things? That Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. This is a synagogue. The scriptures presented. Now, why doesn't uh, Luke right here tell us the whole thing that Paul preached there? Because the way he does that is he gives a big version of it in Acts 13. A long version. So we know what they were typically preaching and what the scriptures were. There are several long speeches that tells us the content. And there was only so much room on the, in the writing. And so we're expected to believe what was taught in Berea would be like what was taught in Pisidian Antioch and in Acts 13. So if you want more details, go to Acts 13. It's the same idea, though. 
there's long speeches there. Now, what were those things? Well, the Messiah, proof from Psalms, proof from Isaiah. Well, look at Jesus. Actually, go all the way back to Nazareth with Jesus. He preached from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. We can tell what it was by the different speeches in Luke X. And I mentioned to you last week that Luke, I love Luke X. I've been now like 15 years teaching from it. Took me 10 years to get, most of 10 years to get through Luke. Um, I just love it. He just lays this out there and you can see the pattern. And the long speeches, or even the short ones, are always significant. And Luke uses that. And sometimes the speeches are from people we wouldn't even have thought of. Look at the beginning of Luke. Simeon. uh, Zacharias. Mary. Elizabeth. and And then if you really want to know, now Luke makes it pretty clear is this somebody we should listen to or not well if you're not sure sometimes Luke will say uh, the Holy Spirit came upon someone and then they spoke now let me give you a, 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 a light lightning flash of hermeneutics if the Holy Spirit came on someone and they spoke then we should listen to it Okay, I mean, that's not very complicated. But it's amazing how many people don't. They got their other way of figuring it out. No, these are authoritative witnesses. And what made what they said authoritative and important in Luke wasn't necessarily their status before they spoke. In our minds, some of these people have status because of we already know and we have church history. In other words, in our mind, Mary, Elizabeth, Zacharias, they're important people. But before the fact, they weren't. What made them important is what God did through them. God works through unexpected people. And so the one who speaks powerfully for God is the one who knows and understands the scripture and the one upon whom the Holy Spirit falls, and they speak for God. But here, we're talking about before even there's a response one way or another. Now, if you look at that word, open-minded, it's an interesting word. It's not used literally here. The word in the Greek is eugenes, eugenes. It's where we get our word eugenics. Now, remember how we use a word doesn't tell us anything about what it meant 2,000 years ago. Etymology doesn't determine meaning. Usage does. So don't make the etymological fallacy. It meant this, therefore it must. Well, every language and every author uses it in different ways. Here, Luke is not using it literally, but I think there's something powerful about how he does use it. I love this. Eugenes. Eugenics means, here's what it means according to the dictionary of the New Testament. Complete word study dictionary New Testament. No, noble descended from a good family of high rank. And it's sometimes used that way. Luke 19, 12, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, in Job 1, 3, in the Septuagint. Metaphorically, meaning noble-minded or generous. So literally, I mean, of a noble, of, a, of nobility. But here, it's not saying that the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica were of nobility. They were Jews in a synagogue like anybody else. The ones mentioned of being of high rank were a few Gentiles uh, of nobility. We'll see that in a bit. But it's not used literally here. It's used metaphorically. What makes these people noble? That they were willing to listen. Here's good news, dear saints. The way to be noble 
under the new covenant, covenant is to listen to what God said and examine the evidence. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what nationality you descended from. There's one, ultimately, we're all descended from Adam. And what that gets us is dead. In Adam, all die. But, you know, we're concerned about nobility. America supposedly doesn't have any. They have it over in England. So our TV shows are always telling us what the nobility in England did. Because we supposedly don't have any. Uh, But for Christians, what do we care? If you want to be nobility, search the scriptures. And see what's true and what isn't. So that's how that's used there. Here, Dr. Peterson says a term used here referred originally to noble birth, but came to be applied more generally to high-minded behavior. And he says that Josephus used it that way. Luke means that the Berean Jews allowed no prejudice to prevent them from giving Paul a fair hearing. Do you really have evidence that this Jesus you're preaching is the Jewish Messiah? And if you do, what is it? Now, if you want to know what that answer was, go back to Luke 13, where you get the long version. You don't get the long version every single time in Luke. Now, sometimes he gives a longer speech, like we'll see when he speaks to the Athenian philosophers, a different audience. So it says here they were uh, more noble than those at Thessalonica, who just a few believed in, there was a riot. It says they welcomed the message. Now, the word welcomed is that what I love so much, decomai, I carry around a printout that has every time the word decomai, here I have every time used in Luke X, which is about half of the New Testament usages. And then it all, Luke has a very broad vocabulary, hupodecomai, anadecomai, paradecomai. He has prefixes for variety, uh, literary style, intensification, and so on. So that word welcome, there's another word for welcome, which is lambano or parlabano, which is more general. But this generally means, if referring to a person, to welcome someone into your home warmly. And so if you look at its use in Luke Acts and go back to Luke, some interesting people welcomed Jesus. And they weren't always the ones that people would expect. Let me see if I can find some quickly here. Here's one, Luke 18, 19. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. That's Luke 18, 19. There the word receive is decomai, welcome. I'm just giving you the lemma. I'm not parsing them out. In this case, we get the idea. Receive. Now, when it says receive like a child, it doesn't mean you have to baptize your babies because that's the only time anybody will ever receive Jesus. That doesn't mean that at all. It means generally children will believe what adults tell them. And so they're receiving Christ openly like a child would receive people, typically. It's wisdom. So Mary, and then in Acts 8.14, Samaria received the word of God, so they sent Peter. 
and so on. So there, there's just a few examples, but there are others. And some of them are under the ones that have prefixes, and I have a whole pile of paper here. Welcomed us, welcome the church, and so on. So we want to see the significance of welcoming. In this case, they welcomed the message. And that was noble-minded. That was good. Eagerness here is, it can be translated readiness. And uh, it means a brisk and careful, cheerful readiness. Tell us what you have. Give us the evidence. Welcome. What do you got? Lay it out here. Show us. Now, this is so rare. It is. It's very rare. In our culture today, it's almost non-existent. Because people are so motivated by their own irrational emotions that they don't want to hear evidence about anything. And if you try to present evidence, you get this. I can't hear you. You know, kids do that sometimes when they do want to receive something. And I found that over and over again, even with Christians. It doesn't mean they have to believe me, but they should be willing to examine the evidence and they get back to me about where I'm wrong. That's fine. Okay. Now wait until you hear Eric's sermon this morning. I had a nice talk with him. Um, that'll really lay it out there. People don't care what's true. They have their idea. And that's especially true, I mean, in regard to everything. Religion, science, general revelation. Yeah, it's, it's all emotion. You're mostly emotion. How rare is it that anybody would try to sit down, look at the evidence? I remember, again, I think it pays to know the culture so that we don't fall into the trap. Okay. We want to be more like this than like our culture. Now, I remember when uh, I was a teenager, before I was a Christian, but the adults in the world I grew up in, in rural Iowa, had gone through World War II. Many veterans were in positions of power. People had been to World War II. Or my grandpa had been through World War I. Most everybody had experienced a Great Depression, if at least as a child. And whatever political party anybody was from, we, once they got on a board, whether it was my dad was chairman of the school board, he was a farmer, he was on the school board, county commissioner, draft board, conservation board, church board. My dad loved people, and the farm there weren't a lot of people when you're out plowing. So when I got old enough, he put me on a tractor and he went and did what he liked to do, which was be around people. And I was kind of the opposite. I'd just still be on the tractor. Nobody's bugging me. <laughs> but I, he talked to me in later years when he retired and we went fishing together, told me stories about what happened. But what was going on was the adults were getting together trying to find the best answer for whatever it was. And there wasn't this hatred, bitter polarization, uh, you know, just driven by mad passion and emotion. It's got to be my way or I'm going to punch somebody. The adults in the world in 1968 were trying to figure out how to solve problems. Now, it's not that there weren't any bad motives around. There always has been. But one thing I remember, and I think this speaks to this noble-minded thing, and maybe I was wrong in my perception, but I don't think so. One thing I remember when I was a teenager, the adults in the world were, to our mind, monolithic. And the adults of the world that we knew that any kind of authority had one position. We know you teenagers are up to no good, and we're not going to let you get by with it. And 
if you were a miscreant, you couldn't find comfort from an adult. You couldn't say, well, my dad doesn't understand me. I'll go to the school counselor. Oh, no. No. You do not go to the school counselor. The only time you want to ever see the school counselor was when it was time to apply for college and he had all the documents you needed and told you what tests you had and where you maybe could go. Other than that, those that went to the school counselor were in trouble. And if you caused big trouble, you got big consequences. And it didn't matter who was in charge of the school board. It was always that way. Because the adults pretty well agreed that we got to get these kids taught, we got to give them discipline, we got to get them raised, and get them off to what they're going to do, prepare them for whatever they're going to do. And so it was. But not now, and not even 30 years ago. There are kids that are getting bad grades. Why are you getting bad grades? Why did you miss all these classes? Well, I was at the counselor's office. Why did you go there? Why won't well, see, the rebellious teenagers would now go to the counselor, and the counselor agrees with the teenager against the parents. That's not noble-minded, is it? But we've got something of far more consequence than how you handle rebellious teenagers. We have the consequence of eternal life and salvation. And we've got the issue, who speaks for God? And the answer is, God speaks for himself, and he does so through his ordained spokespersons. Moses and the prophets, Christ and his apostles and prophets. That's who speaks for God. And so that's a subtle issue. But if you want to go back a stage, we'll deal with that too. We'll prove that's who speaks from God. But assuming we accept that, the Jews believe Moses did, and, and David and so on, so then they start from there and prove Messiah. So starting from there, then we've found now in the last 30, 40 years, since the 80s, that it's Christians who don't want to be Bereans. They're in church and they're saying, we had an experience. We are right because we are we. And don't give us any evidence from the Bible. And if you do come with the Bible to the church, we won't give you a hearing because you're a troublemaker. We'll tell you to go somewhere else. So forget about the culture. That's pagan anyhow. That's bad enough. Now the church doesn't want to even hear what the Bible says. And I found that out in the 80s. I, I was shocked. I honestly thought that if you could present a biblical uh, argument with evidence to pastors, they would be happy to hear it. So in the late 80s, I started a pastor's meeting. I wrote papers. I presented them to the pastors or invited them to write a paper, present it to other pastors, and we'll talk it over right here. And open our Bibles and see what it is. Well, that would actually went pretty well. I would present the evidence and we'd talk about it. But I found out none of them would go and do it. They might even privately say, yeah, I know you got biblical evidence. But they didn't want to change anything. Because then they wouldn't be popular in their own church. They didn't want to correct a false prophet. They want to correct a false teacher. They didn't want to do anything about it. That's not being noble-minded. So that became frustrating. So in 1992, decided to start publishing Critical Issues Commentary and send the documents to the people. If the pastors don't want to hear it, we'll just send it to anybody and everybody, including pastors. And so that's been, what, how many years? Almost 30? What will it be, what will it be next year? 92, 202, yeah, 30 years. Coming up there on 30 years. So that's fine. Here's the question, though. Which are we? 
Are we from Thessalonica? And we allow emotions to determine what we believe, political alliances, feelings, our own pride, or are we noble-minded? This is the only nobility that you can become if you weren't born into it. Isn't that interesting? If you believe in God, the Christ, you can be a king and priest to God. Yes, uh, Dan. I was just wondering um, where it starts out, that verse 11. It says, people here are more open-minded. That's what the Holman Christian says. And then in your notes here, it says... Noble-minded. Noble-minded. And then mine says, the New King James says, fair-minded. Because I've always heard... Um, I even hear people on in my family uh, telling me to be more open-minded. And to me, that's more like they're they're trying to get you to... To agree with things that are more that that are outside of Scripture, they want you to to go down other bunny trails. So I just wonder if, uh, and I heard that okay, open-minded is kind of like having a um, a door in Minnesota without a screen on it in the summer. You're letting all the okay. everything in. You know. All right. Um, yeah, the Holman says open mind. Well, the point is, good. That's a very good question. At issue was whether we were allowed the scriptures to teach us or not. It's not saying they were open-minded to the mad passions of the mob in Thessalonica. That's what they were. What They were noble-minded. See, the translations are trying to bring out the metaphor because it wasn't saying say they were literally of noble blood. It's saying they were noble-minded in the sense that they'd be willing to search the scriptures to see. So if somebody wants us to be open-minded to some pagan idea, that's not the scriptures. So what is it that they're wanting us to be open to? If, if it's against the scriptures, I'm not open to it. I'll listen to people's ideas, but I have a biblical worldview. But a Christian, what? A, why would Christians not want to search the scriptures? Okay, once you're already a Christian, I, I've written books. I did talk to the the two books I've written. I talked to the uh, people that were key people and writers in the movements I was disagreeing with, and I had private hearings with several of them. They don't tell me, they, none of them told me I didn't have any biblical evidence. The emergent didn't tell me that, and neither did the seeker movement. They didn't say that at all. But they didn't want to deal with it. They ignored me to death after publication. Yeah. They are, they're not actually grounded in Scripture. So that's what the, that's the issue, yeah. If somebody calls you narrow-minded, take it as a compliment. Say, yeah, my mind is as narrow as the Bible. True. But uh, what if somebody says, you haven't really read correctly a certain passage? Are you willing to try to see if we listen to it? I think we should. Maybe they're not right, but we should at least listen to arguments from the Bible. But we're narrow in the sense they want us to adopt a pagan worldview. We don't want to do that. Yes. Is it, is it possible, Bob, that it's, the open-minded is a work of God? Because when they're on the road to Emmaus, the disciples were, or the men were there, and they were, they were right in front of the risen Christ, and it says somewhere in there that he opened, opened their, their minds mind. so that they could understand what was going on. Good reading. Good reading. You already got coffee, so it's getting low. Um, no, that's a very good reading. In fact, I could go, have gone there. I had to be, decide what to emphasize. So, actually, I, I go to Thessalonians because that's on the table here, Thessalonica. Um, he was explaining the scriptures to them. But see, look at Saul of Tarsus, also in Luke Acts. Did Stephen present evidence in his speech at the occasion of his martyrdom. Yes. 
Did he present good evidence? Oh, yes. And he presented material directly from Israel's history that they all would have known to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Who heard that evidence? Paul. Back then he was Saul. He heard it. Just like those people on the road were hearing it. And so we got to get this right or we'll uh, misunderstand what's being said. It's not that when God opens our mind, now the Bible means something it didn't mean before. That's not what we're saying. The Bible always meant what it means. But we were too blinded to listen to it. So if you go to Luke 24, you can read that section on the road to Emmaus. And that's a very good cross-reference. I would have gone there, but I had to choose which thing I wanted to pursue. But I had that in my notes. So very good reading. But what opened their mind was a work of grace. Now just look at Saul of Tarsus, because Paul later said that he was an example of God saving sinners. He heard Stephen. He, how could you watch what Stephen went through? Hear his great speech. Watch the injustice done when he was martyred for being a faithful witness of Christ. Agree with the martyr, the executioners, and gain rage to try to kill more Christians. Paul was one who was blinded by rage and emotion and wanted the Christians dead. And on his way, he met the resurrected Christ who appeared to him. Literally, it wasn't just an apparition. It was the real Christ. He said that later, 1 Corinthians. He was blinded. I think in God's providence for him to think about how blind he really was. And then God sent a nobody, Ananias, upon whom the Holy Spirit had come to speak to Paul that he receive his sight and be commissioned. Interesting, isn't that right? So what changed Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle? It wasn't his own open-mindedness. It was a sovereign work of grace. Is that right? What changed the disciples on the road to Emmaus? God touched their heart. So here's something we can learn from that. The only reason we are open is because God touched us. But he uses means, and he uses uh, the means of, the, the ordained means are the means of grace. But what about Christians? If you've already been touched by God and you're born again, why would you hate the scriptures? You know, there's a lot of people that are with us, but they're not really of us in the bigger world. And now the hostility comes from, I mean, Eric and I have run into that at seminary. Uh, local Bible college found by some of the most popular evangelical leaders refusing to have a pro-life speaker come because preserving human life doesn't reflect their values. Northwestern? Yes, Northwestern. Supposedly associated with Billy Graham. Isn't that amazing? What you're making crystal clear to us, I mean, this is absolutely crystal clear. You're not saved if you don't love the scriptures. You can't be. You're not saved if you don't abide in the scriptures. You're not saved if you don't take heed from the scriptures. If you don't believe in them, you can't be saved. If you How don't even you care. You don't care. If you don't How care. How could you be saved? There's something wrong. I remember the debate with Greg Boyd, and I laid out scripture after scripture, and he's the one who believes that God doesn't know the future. And, and it, it went, privately, when we were going back to sort through the questions that came in during the debate. He said, you have a strong exegetical argument. But it wasn't going to change anything. Yes. 
Well, you, I would say you, uh, one of the Psalms says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And if you don't, you certainly aren't blessed if you, unless you delight in it. Yeah, if we harden ourselves, we, we, we're in serious problem. So eagerness, they had eagerness, cheerful readiness. So I'm, I'm breaking this down here. They welcomed the message, which is from the Bible. Eagerness. And examined, the word for examined, anacrino, which is the word crino, judge, plus ana, which is upon, used here as an intensive prefix. And it means to examine thoroughly. Examine thoroughly, carefully, accurately, to determine the truth of the claims being made. That's what we're called to, by the way. Examine thoroughly and carefully to see, does this hold water? Is this a good reading? That's why we do the Sunday school here the way we do, by the way. And I instituted that in the 80s. You used to come. We always had a, we sat around a little circle and talked about the Bible. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that you may all prophesy, meaning bring forth the meaning of Scripture, to bring out the implication application of Scripture as we search for the meaning and let the others judge. That's what we do. Is that a good reading? Does it follow? And so since the 80s, at least when I teach Sunday school, I know Eric does that, we do this. We open the Scriptures and we examine them. And the reason I started that in the 80s was there were so many people that were just driven by blind passion. They just didn't want to hear anything but what some hotshot preacher on TV was saying. And I said, no, let's examine everything, including anything I say. Yes. Before the resurrection, we have Jesus telling the disciples that he's going into Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen. And Peter says, no, Lord, it's not going to happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Right. Exactly. So the people that land into truth end up that way because of conversion. But what these people were commended for was willing to give a fair-minded, clear, and careful examination of the claims and let Scripture decide whether it's true or false. Do the Old Testament Scriptures, they had in the synagogue, teach that this Jesus would fulfill the claims about who's the Messiah? And that's what was being taught. Now, well, there's so much here. Let me give you a little preview. A couple of weeks. Let's look at this next one. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Down your handout. You know, I was, I was right. I told Christy I didn't think we'd get to any more than this. And we didn't. Well, I never know. It could be that I show up and start teaching and nobody says anything and everybody's falling asleep so I just run through my material. But it doesn't happen that way. But, and that's not because of me. It's because we have people that are so hungry. I'm capable of putting people to sleep. I've done it before. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Christian Standard Bible. I, I looked and looked for a translation that I thought brought out the Greek the best. And this is one that newly showed up in my logo software, Christian Standard Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us. Now, this was the ones in Thessalonica who did receive, because there was a church there. Okay? So there were those who did. And you heard from us. You welcomed. There's our word again, welcome. It not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. 
which works effectively in you who believe. Here's basically everything we've been saying. Received is paralambano, welcome is decamai, and they, those who believe the gospel, even in Thessalonica, understood that it was the very word of God. Now others revolted, and as we'll see, they not only started a riot, they came down from Thessalonica to Berea to stop the preaching there too. They were like earlier Saul of Tarsus. Yes. In First Thessalonians verse five, one verse five, it says, "For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake." In other words. When he came, when Paul came and preached, they knew, whoops, they knew it was that, real that, they, that, they, that that word came so powerfully and these Thessalonians left all of their idolatry and everything exactly. and they followed after exactly. God's and, word. But then there was a riot and so Paul goes down to Berea, which wasn't very far away. One more preview. I've got two minutes. Look at this one. Next time we'll have printout. What happens when you reject the truth? What if all that's true, but then others say, oh, I don't want this. I prefer the world. We have no king but Caesar. I'm doing pretty good. I don't need religion. You know, whatever. I prefer yoga. Kundalini yoga. I'm going to go through that. I'm going to worship the nature around me. The, the earth goddess is probably the most popular deity in America. They don't say that's what they're worshiping, but that's what they're worshiping. And I keep telling people, nature doesn't love you. The universe doesn't love you. There's been a fall God loves you. Have you ever heard what I've heard? I put myself in the hands of the universe. And what's my answer? The universe doesn't care about you. And then something bad happens, oh, it's my karma or the universe. Is, no, the universe is impersonal, other than the demons that are part of it. Those that worship, idols worship demons. So, where is that leading? So if you don't receive the love of the truth, you don't believe Jesus is the Lord, you don't care what the Bible says, you want to be rid of all these Christian preachers and Christian people of any sort, and we really have the world. Well, what's going to happen? Well, this is what will happen at the end under Antichrist. And with every wicked deception, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, among those who are perishing, why do they perish? They perish because they do not accept, decomai, the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. And I'll talk about this next time. So that they will be condemned. All who do not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Why? The people reject something that has so much evidence going for it. The Bible says, because they loved unrighteousness. You see, the earth goddess doesn't care how you live. The earth goddess says reality is a state of mind. The earth goddess doesn't care about male and female. You can be anything you want at a young age. It's really all a big lie. And so that's the problem. There's a judgment that will come because people rejected the love of the truth. And then we got to, we're running out of time here.
That's another a big lie of Satan. The, the pagan world, they'll say that they're the ones that are open-minded, and uh, the Christians uh, who really had the open mind were closed-minded. Right. They're, they're defining all the terms. Eric will be talking about that. I'm sure he will. I had a nice long... I, I, I can't wait to hear the sermon. But one of the things that pagans do is change the meaning of words in order to promote their agenda. Okay? And they're just wanting to deceive you. And what they really want is power. All right, let's, let's hold a prayer. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be noble-minded like the Bereans. And if the truth is seen and known, may we embrace it and love it and love you who gave it to us, and ultimately believe and obey the truth. Help us, dear Lord, and thank you for the flock. Pray that everyone with any kind of a sickness or issue, Lord, uh, take action on their behalf. May we reach out to one another and care for one another. Pray for Eric that he preaches with boldness today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you.